Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. back episode 71 welcome to another uap adventure i am steven diener here with you on the unidentified alien podcast and so happy to be back with you on a new episode of the original form of the unidentified alien podcast been a while since we heard that music there actually but obviously things kind of picked up in recent weeks on the uh, uap weekly side with all the interviews and news as of late lots of it um those things have been you know hugely important of course and very happy that i've been able to cover those things but today, we're going to cover a couple of names that are pretty topical right now, and they are Albert Einstein and J. Robert Oppenheimer. Believe it or not, there are those who say they were involved with some of the very first modern-day UFO investigations. And by the end of this episode, you may not be surprised by that, actually, when we kind of piece it all together. But we'll get to that. But first, you know it's time to hit our factoid, so let's do it. Factoid. There it is. Yes, the factoid is back. And it has been a while, hasn't it, since we did one of these UAPs. But anyway, it's, it has been too long. But, you know, look, like I said, a lot was going on in, uh, with UAP Weekly and everything. So it was all worth it. It all comes together. But today I want to touch on something that has been kind of like simultaneously praised and put down at the same time, I guess, depending on who you speak to about it. And I'm referring to the news uh, from Tennessee Congressman Tim Burchett that his UAP amendment, or I should say the proposal of his amendment, was added into the new National Defense Authorization Act. So, for 2024, that is. So, if you see something about uh, a UAP amendment in the NDAA for 2024, that's what that means. But what does it mean to begin with? In his own words, Burchett tweeted that his amendment will require the Department of Defense to declassify... Any documents and records relating to publicly known sightings of UAPs that do not compromise the national security of the United States. So there is, it sounds good on paper when you hear about, you know, a UAP amendment that would uh, disclose some information or declassify some, some information. But it sounds like window dressing to me, if I'm being honest with you, publicly known sightings, declassify the details not compromising national security. I, you know, of course, we get that one, but they can hide behind that all day. We've seen them hide behind, you know, in the interest of national security for the past 70, 80 years. So I can see why people are kind of a little down on it. Other people are very excited about it. You know, maybe that means some progress. Um, also, from uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, his recent 
I guess, statement saying that they want to declassify a lot of the different files, the UFO files, as, as they were calling them. So that's a pretty big deal as well. So it's just interesting to see this talk kind of ramp up. I've never seen it before in my lifetime when it comes to, you know, senators, congressmen talking about these things out in the open the way that Chuck Schumer is now or Tim Burchett or Marco Rubio or uh, Senator Gillibrand, all these different names who have been bringing these things up about getting uh, this conversation out in the forefront to have these hearings in, you know, Congress and things of that nature, speaking to whistleblowers behind the scenes, you know, such as Michael Herrera, D.C. Long, a lot of those guys who, you know, uh, had the confidential whistleblower testimonies. So a lot of these things happening, it's kind of unprecedented that they're having this discussion out in the open now and they want to have these things out in the open. We'll see where it goes. There's also speculation of a public hearing before the end of July. Now, that was also something that uh, Congressman Burchett said about their their hope, their goal is to have this UAP hearing before the end of July. So obviously I'm going to keep you up to date on that. If it is in Washington, D.C., if it is public, I would love to go. I'm not going to lie, and it's kind of a shame to say this, but I might have to do some type of crowdfunding thing. If, if you guys want me to go, if you think it's worth it for me to go, I might have to do some type of GoFundMe because... I was just in D.C. last month, and it's it's not cheap. So uh, uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. If I'm able to go, if it's open to the public, maybe we can work together on that. We'll, we'll see. If, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But outside of all that, getting back to the task at hand, what if I told you that two of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century were actually recruited to investigate the UAP phenomenon, just as it started to enter into the mainstream consciousness of the public. Yes, today's episode is centered around those two names I mentioned at the start of the show, Albert Einstein and J. Robert Oppenheimer. Now, to be fair, I have been meaning to cover these two stories. I really have, I swear. I wasn't waiting to do these to coincide with the new Christopher uh, Christopher Nolan movie that is coming out next week as of this recording here on July 14th. Of course, named Oppenheimer. Everybody's been talking about this movie. There's a lot of hype around the Oppenheimer movie that covers both him and Einstein, actually, in the movie in the midst of World War II and their quest to develop the atomic bomb. I swear the timing of all this is just an absolute coincidence. Right. So anyway, according to some of the witnesses, these men were indeed included in on some of the most uh, sensitive and secretive UFO crash retrievals, starting with Oppenheimer and his supposed involvement in a recovered craft from New Mexico back in 1948. Does that sound familiar? Where is Roswell, New Mexico? But this is the story of the uh, crash in Aztec, New Mexico, back in 1948. It's kind of a lesser-known crash. There's some dispute about this, but... Here's a little uh, information about the Aztec New Mexico crash of 1948. The gist of the Aztec tale is that in 1948, a flying saucer complete with anywhere from 14 to 18 bodies crashed in Aztec New Mexico and recovered under cover of high secrecy by the U.S. military. So lots of bodies. I mean, you heard there, you know, around like 12 bodies possibly. Uh, that that's, that's a whole ton. I never heard of that one before when it comes to the amount of... Uh, Alien bodies that would have been recovered, studied, and so on and so forth. Um, the, now, again, just for full disclosure, I always put this out there. 
There's been a lot of talk about this one in the past. Some people say it was a hoax. It was made up. Others say that it's absolutely true and the truth is being hidden. I'm just going to give you the information and we can go from there. But this incident was reported on March 25th, 1948. And of course, it got a lot of attention in that time. It was first noticed, as the story goes, by uh, oil field workers. And because of the large fire it, it created, they were afraid uh, that it was a brush fire and that would it would actually affect their fields. I mean, of course, I mean, all that oil would catch on fire. So as the workers went to take a look, they noticed what was what they described anyway, according to the story, as a 100 foot in diameter flying saucer shaped craft that was crashed right there on top of the Mesa. They notified all the appropriate authorities and the military was notified, of course. And from there, as you can imagine, the wreckage was never seen again by the public or so the story goes. Now, but just think about the size of the 100 feet in diameter. That is enormous. Think about a football field, okay? American football, if you're listening overseas. It's 53 and a half yards wide. So, I mean, just kind of do the math there. That's, that, that's a, it's a big UFO. Now, enter Oppenheimer, who reportedly was called in as part of a group to try to make sense out of this whole thing. Now, the following is supposedly an excerpt from the findings. So I'm just going to read this word for word. It says, The instrument panel contained several push buttons and control levers labeled in a hieroglyphic-type symbol from unknown to any of the scientists on the team. Or I should say type of symbol form unknown to any of the scientists on the team. Now, Oppenheimer, who knew Sanskrit, made a remark that the symbols did resemble Sanskrit to some degree. Now, in case you don't know, Sanskrit is uh, defined as the sacred language of Hinduism, the language of a classical Hindu philosophy and it's of historical text of Buddhism. And Oppenheimer uh, did know that, that language. Outside of that, or he knew how to read it, I should say, it is also said that he examined a sort of uh, what they called like a book. They described it as a book that was found inside the UFO consisting of what they said was like a, a plastic-like material that the pages were made out of. And those strange symbols, hieroglyphic, uh, Sanskrit-type-looking things, were on those plastic-like pages. Now, according to the reports, no one, including Oppenheimer, could really make heads or tails out of the whole thing. So they sent it off to different uh, crypto, crypto analysts who tried to decipher the strange symbols that were filled the, the, the plastic pages, you know, written all over the pages. But it had them all stumped. Nobody knew what it was. <laughs> or so they say, anyway. In fact, very little else is really known about this story since 1948. But what happened to the 100-foot saucer craft? The book with the symbols. All those bodies. No sign of those things. No reports of what happened to all of those major uh, details of the story. Now, there was something that caught my eye, though, when I was looking into this, it was reported that the government closed Highway 550 north in order to remove the object. These were according to uh, eyewitness reports at the time. This was reported in actually a local newspaper called the Durango Herald. And then it was mentioned again by the paper in uh, one of their features called 25 Years Ago Today. So in 1973, 25 years after 1948, they mentioned that story. And the story goes... That the military, according to this newspaper and locals at the time, they said the military cut down every roadside pole from the crash site all the way along to White Sands Testing Range to get the, this, this giant UFO there.
Now, if all this is true, it would not surprise me at all that, you know, a brilliant man like Oppenheimer would have been would have been involved. I mean, okay, again, think about the timeline here, 1948. So it's three years after the war ended with the dropping of the atomic bombs in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So Oppenheimer is, you know, on the top of everybody's mind as like a, a top guy to go to. Now, there was an, another actual uh, site here the year before that supposedly Oppenheimer was involved with. And I'm sorry I don't have more details about the Aztec crash, but it's very spotty, which is why some people say it's, it's a hoax. But that's how the story goes. And there are locals, like I said, who say that they saw it all happen. So I guess we don't really know for sure on that one. Now, a year before that, though, in 1947, the same year as the Roswell crash, Near Holloman Air Force Base, some people call this the lesser-known Roswell incident. Um, it's known because it happened in the same year, of course, of 1947, and in New Mexico, like I said, near Holloman Air Force Base, which, by the way, just to kind of give a geographical context, is two and a, it's a two-and-a-half-hour drive northeast of Roswell. So also, in case you're wondering, just to kind of jump back here, uh, Azteca, New Mexico is about 375 miles northwest of Roswell as it relates to that uh, first story. Now, according to the reports, you have Oppenheimer, who was one of many VIPs who were called in to study this downed otherworldly craft near Holloman Air Force Base. And for whatever reason, there isn't a ton of detail on this one either when it comes to this story. Maybe it's just lost to time. I don't know, but there was one source that had some details about the supposed recovered uh, UFO, a book named UFO Crash Retrievals, The Inner Sanctum, Status Report 6. I know it's a long title, but that's the name of it. Uh, it was by a man named Leonard Stringfield, and Stringfield was the director of the Civilian Research uh, for Interplan Interplanetary Flying Objects. So he had his hands full, I guess. But it was one of the world's largest research groups during the uh, mid-1950s. The book itself uh, was released in 1991. Now, this excerpt from the book, is it's a little wordy, but I felt it was best if I just kind of read the report straight from the source so you can get a good feel from it, or, or I should say for it. But um, again, this this comes from this book, and it's supposed to be I, it's supposed to be the real deal. I mean, they say this was actual uh, a back and forth of the report from this crash near Holloman Air Force Base in 1947. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. So 
the person asking the questions, they said, um, how many how many were there as far as alien bodies? And someone said, I remember about a dozen or more. And uh, they're talking about the craft resting near a hillside. It appeared slightly tilted, they said. The craft appeared to be a large, round, dome-shaped, almost egg-shaped disc with a flat bottom. Now, I do find that intriguing because we've heard that description before from other crash or landing stories about these egg-shaped UFOs. So that's pretty interesting. They said it looked bigger than a B-29 in size. Uh, the personnel in the foreground gave a sense of scale to it. So they said that kind of gave them a, uh, you know, a, a, a good measurement stick, I guess you could say, of how big this thing was because there were people standing in the foreground by it. They say, I guess it was approximately 100 feet in diameter, which is the same size as the one we just spoke about in Azteca, and about 15 to 20 feet high at the center. So this is a big ship. This, this is a big UFO, according to this report. They go on to say, I saw a rim or a dihedral edge near the bottom of the craft in one photo. I saw no landing gear, exhaust ports, or windows. Now, just to stop there real quick, that is pretty consistent with a lot of these UFOs that we hear about. Um, they go on to say, I did see one access opening or door-like opening that seemed to open outward. Now, the witness was then asked, according to uh, this book here, they were asked, what do you remember of the technical report itself? And they mentioned a couple of familiar names here. They said part of the report was done by a German scientific team, which included Werner von Braun. And, of course, that's a famous name when it comes to, you know, the, the history of UFOs and rockets. Now, the person answering the questions goes on to talk about some of the Air Force generals they brought in, uh, uh, brought in including Vandenberg himself and Wainwright, actually, another high-ranking brass, uh, as they say, to the Holloman Air Force Base. They also talked about a man named General Groves, and they say that he was flown in with Oppenheimer and von Neumann, von Karman, I think... Their names were mentioned in the report as well, they go on to say. I do not think anyone had any idea what kind of craft this was or what it was doing there. The base was sealed for a week or so. Even the airstrip and hangars were off limits to most of the base. I did not see any reference to any astronauts, in quotes, being taken into custody, but I heard there was an armored vehicle sent to the landing site along with some meat wagons, as he put it obviously to recover dead bodies. The base dispensary was under MP guard at one section of the building, but I think it was not related, is what he said about the, uh, I guess, the you know security there. But some pretty inter interesting stuff, mentioning names like Vandenberg, Wainwright, of course, Oppenheimer, showing up with one of the generals, talking about this 15 to 20-foot uh, high egg-shaped craft, 100 feet in diameter, Pretty similar um, measurements to the one from that the 1948 supposed crash in Azteca. And according to reports and supposed witnesses, Oppenheimer was present at both sites to study both crafts. So, again, of course, make of it what you will. But I, for one, found it very intriguing that uh, Oppenheimer would be involved with these things. And if you're thinking it, then yes... There is speculation that Oppenheimer was also involved with the study of the retrieved Roswell wreckage. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, why wouldn't he be considering everything else he was involved with, you know, during that time? Why, why wouldn't they ask him to be a part of these investigations? We're talking about, you know, again, one of the top minds in the world at that time, along with Einstein.
So it would make sense that he would be involved in these investigations for sure. Now, speaking of which, actually, I mentioned Einstein. It is said that he is one man who is put at the scene of the recovered wreckage from Roswell. That's right, Mr. Albert Einstein himself. So let's go ahead and take a look at Einstein, the Roswell investigator. Because there was someone who says that she was there with him as his assistant. And you're going to hear from her right now as we begin this tale of Einstein and Roswell. All I recall is several people using the word Roswell. It looked like an, at an airport facility where there was like a, a rather good-sized building, a hangar, where they had the spaceship and that, where they had the bodies. It was badly damaged. Now, obviously, she's talking about, you know, one of the Air Force Base or one of the bases that the Roswell wreckage may have been taken to. And she says she was there with Einstein. Now, we don't actually have Einstein himself talking in this, but this is a woman named Dr. Shelley Wright. She was a personal assistant to Einstein. That is verified. She was. And according to her story, she went along with him to witness the Roswell wreckage as well as the alien bodies. This is a credible witness. I'm just going to say that right off the bat. This is someone, again, verified to be a personal assistant, one of the main personal assistants to Einstein. She traveled from London with him to New Mexico, to Roswell, to check this wreckage and the alien bodies out. So, you know, if you want to say that she lied about the whole thing, that's up to you, but listen to what she has to say. And just remember, this is somebody who really was one of his personal assistants. It said that he was summoned, though, by the U.S. government to come and help with the investigation. And according to Dr. Shirley Wright, she was chosen by Einstein himself to go along with him. So the clip you heard came from an interview she did in 1993 where she spoke in great detail about this whole ordeal and how Einstein reacted to the situation as well. That said, what we're going to do is play some of those clips. There's about eight of them or so. From that interview, uh, what I want to do is break it down bit by bit because some of it is pretty darn interesting. It's very thought provoking. So it's up to you again whether or not you you find Dr. Shelley Wright to be telling the truth or credible. But I'm just letting you know her history, her past, and you're going to hear what she has to say. Here's a clip of Dr. Wright as she recalls what the body of the aircraft looked like, how it looked from the outside. The body of the ship was what I would call today rather a reflective material, but when you looked at it and you were close to it, it was rather dull. So it had to be energy reflective or translucent or uh, glowing. And uh, it was uh, disc shaped and it was not too high. It was sort of concave. Okay, so not too high. So it sounds like maybe it was a little bit smaller than the other craft that we were talking about with Oppenheimer, but there was one word in there that I want to key on. She mentioned translucent, and that really struck me because if you remember when I spoke to uh, my contact with the military intelligence, uh, goes by the pseudonym Anthony Williams, I can't use his real name, but I've talked about before how he's mentioned to me about translucent craft being seen by pilots, military pilots. Those are reports that are happening now. This interview is in 1993 about, about the Roswell incident in 1947. And we're talking about a craft that may have been translucent and something that she's talking about from 1947. And I'm being told now in 2023 that military pilots are seeing these craft that appear to be translucent. 
So I found that connection to be kind of striking, you know, 30 years apart from her interview to, to what I'm being told now. It's, uh, well, it, 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 it intrigued me for sure, to say the least. But I found this part to be really thought-provoking as well. Here's where Dr. Wright talks about what Einstein and the other scientists and the officials who were there, what they were looking for as they entered the ship. Here's what she said about that. Uh, they went inside. They also wanted to see the method of propulsion. They were interested to see. They wanted to see if they had any other uh, types of control devices or uh, communication devices or what kind of even things they had for the journey. In other words, if they had come such a long distance, how were they able to do that and so forth? You know, what you and I would call food or respiratory gases, you know, what did they use? They were very interested in, in identifying that. So a lot there and some of the basic questions, you know, how do you live? How did you get here? Different things like that. And we've talked about some of the speculation actually just recently in UAP Weekly. We talked about, uh, you know, that Reddit thread where the supposed biologist who's worked on alien bodies and in, uh, in Maryland at a secret biological lab has talked about how they would eat this or eat kind of, I guess, drink or slurp up this uh, protein type of liquid. Um, so, you know, that's something that it's, it's interesting that they asked that back in 1947. And it's something that supposedly they're still studying now as far as how do you get your nutrition? You know, what's what's happening? What type of you know systems do you have in your body? One thing she also mentioned was propulsion. You know, how they were trying to figure out how did you get from where you were and what type of propulsion are you using? Because, again, just like any other classic UFO sighting, there's no visible propulsion system. So one analogy that I want to mention that I heard recently that I found um, – Pretty, it was, I thought it was a pretty good analogy, was how they might be bending space-time in order to travel the way that they do. Now, if we're going with the theory that we have, you know, alien visitors coming from far distances, light years away, how would they get here and, you know, survive the journey? Is it wormholes? Are they bending space-time? One analogy that I heard recently was if you put like a a bowling ball on a bed and you put your, you know, obviously it's, it's going to sink down. That bowling ball is going to sink down into the bed. It's not going to move. But if you go in front of the bowling ball and put your fist down on the bed, what's going to happen? The ball is going to roll toward you. Now there's no, there's no propulsion on that bowling ball. There's nothing that's actually physically on the ball that is pushing it forward. But there's something there's another force, in this case, your fist pushing down, bending the bed forward that would allow the ball to move forward. So that's one way, I guess, to think about, you know, I know that's kind of heady, so I, but I, I thought that was interesting. I thought that was a pretty cool analogy where if you think about it that way, maybe they're, they're able to bend space-time in the way that, you know, a ball would move forward when we put our fist on the bed. I guess just, you know, one, another theory to consider, I suppose. But I also found it interesting how this was kind of the, the beginning of it all. I mean, all these investigations, all these stories that we talk about so much on the show for the past couple of years. And I just imagine Einstein in this hangar with all these other officials and scientists trying to figure out what they're seeing, you know, talking to any surviving aliens, looking inside this craft and how far we've come 
you know, since then, still trying to figure these things out. So just that imagery is, is fascinating to me. But getting back here to Dr. Shelley Wright, she says that they actually, uh, some of the officials gave her some details of what they saw inside the UFO and what it looked like. She explained some of that here. Very much, oddly, like a lot of science fiction movies today. A lot of equipment, very trim, all along the perimeter. Things that would come up from the floor automatically. Pods that would come out, things like that. So, pretty much, you know, kind of a, like she said, something you would see in science fiction movies. You know, the way that the controls were, pods coming out of the ground. Um, It kind of makes me wonder, you know... Did Hollywood get their depictions of some of these craft from these very stories? Maybe they knew somebody on the inside that was giving them information of what these things looked like. I don't know. But Dr. Wright went on and said that they actually communicated with one of the aliens while it was still alive. And that they spoke to the officials who were there using telepathy. She says that the aliens wanted to know about our lifespan and what causes us to die such as diseases and other things that could or would harm our bodies. She also said they wanted to know how far we penetrated through the galaxies. They were, they were curious about our own interstellar travels, according to her story. And she, was, she also says that they're wondering how much of our oceans we've been able to explore. That's intriguing because of all the things that we've talked about with unidentified submerged objects, even the Tic Tac video from the USS Nimitz in 2004 where it dove under the ocean. The stories off of Catalina Island where these things are seemingly coming up from the water. And all these stories that we've talked about and the theories about how they, you know, some of these crafts, some of these beings might actually be dwelling under our oceans, deep within the waters of our planet. So I found that intriguing as to why they would ask that question. Now, if some of that sounds menacing to you, I don't blame you because honestly, that was kind of my initial reaction as well. Like, why are you asking that stuff? Like, what are you getting at? But Dr. Wright actually addressed that here in in what she had to say next. They did not menace us or threaten us at all because they knew right away we were intellectually inferior and scientifically inferior. So that's intriguing because if, if you kind of think about it, it's, it's, the way I thought about it was how you would approach a baby. Say there's a newborn baby. Someone in your family has a newborn baby or maybe it's your own baby. And what are you going to do? Are you going to feel threatened by that baby? No, you're going to be like, oh, look, it's just a little baby. That little baby's not going to hurt me. I kind of feel like according to like how she's describing this, that's almost how these aliens looked at us humans like, you guys are basically babies in the grand scheme of things, so we're not threatened by you or anything like that. We're not here to cause any trouble because you basically can't match up to us, which is also kind of a sombering thought in a way as well. But Dr. Wright went on and spoke about other questions that were asked to the aliens, which included a very interesting conversation, so to speak, that the surviving alien had with the officials on hand. They asked the aliens why they came here? Why Earth? Dr. Wright explains. Well, this one indicated, at least telepathically, that uh, they were exploring intergalactic space, what we would call intergalactic space. He didn't call it that. Search a better source than where they were. 
they were running into a problem where they are from because of some physical condition energy wise and they needed to go some other place and so we took it that they were wanting to maybe colonize some other place and they were finding that earth was entirely unsuitable to them. that's why they were because they found out that we are not at their level at all so they had nothing to fear from us all right so a lot to kind of touch on there and one thing that kind of struck me there's a couple of things that that struck me was uh the parallels to what she's saying about aliens being peaceful and what someone like dr greer has talked about when it comes to aliens not being in trouble that they are wholly peaceful and, and that they don't want to hurt us and that they're here to basically try to advance our society in some fashion or form. So that was kind of interesting to, to draw those parallels, what she's saying in 1993 to some of the things that we're hearing now from commentators like, you know, Dr. Greer. But she also mentioned something else. And I caught this because I have always found the um, story of Rendlesham Forest to be absolutely fascinating. It's one of the first episodes I ever did on this show. Actually, it might have been the first episode. I think it was. I'd have to go back and look. Um, but it's it's the old story, 1980, Rendlesham Forest in uh, England, December 26th. Uh, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs were out in the woods, and you could go back and listen in detail to this episode, uh, but just a kind of a... Uh, a uh, quick synopsis if you're not familiar with it. And they come across this black triangle UFO. It has actually, funny, I'm just thinking about this now, it had these strange hieroglyphics on it, according to Jim Penningston and John Burroughs. Where did we just hear that? The Oppenheimer story from the Aztec crash in 1948. So inter- interesting correlation there for sure. But they mentioned how Pennington, uh touched the UFO blacked out, had 45 minutes of missing time, and later on kept seeing zeros and ones. He kept having visions of zeros and ones. As he wrote them all down, he later found out that that was binary code. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because he had the binary code uh, supposedly um, translated. And there was one thing that Dr. Wright said there. I'm going to just, I, I want to play this again because there is one part here that I want I want you to hear again. Well, this one indicated, at least telepathically, that uh, they were exploring intergalactic space, what we would call intergalactic space, he didn't call it that, search a better source than where they were. Okay, so exploring intergalactic space, better source of where they were. So that struck me because it made me think of this binary code message that Jim Pennington received at Rendlesham Forest back in 1980 and was later then translated, um, I think in 2010, actually. So it's it's pretty recent that this translation took place. But the translation from the binary code that he received, from what he says, from touching that black triangle UFO, it said, uh, exploration of humanity, continuous for planetary advancement. And they gave a bunch of coordinates in that um, binary code as well that kind of correlated to uh, Sedona, Arizona, uh, the uh, pyramid in in, uh, Giza, Egypt, um, a spot in Belize, and this one place called High Brazil, which is kind of like a mythical island, almost like an Atlantis type of place. And those coordinates all went back 
to those spots on the earth. So it's an incredible story. Like I said, if you want to hear more of it, um, I, I covered a lot of this in, I think, again, was the very, maybe the very first episode of UAP, if not like what, the second one or, or the third one, if you haven't gone back to listen to those. But I absolutely love that story. But I couldn't help but to draw that comparison when she said about how the alien spoke telepathically to them, talking about exploring the, the cosmos and how it kind of matched what Jim Pennington received in that message that was decoded. So maybe maybe I'm stretching it, but I couldn't help but to notice the, the, the similarities there from what this alien supposedly told them in 1947 at the Roswell crash to what Jim Pennington got in 1980. Pretty intriguing. Aside from that, though, Dr. Wright also went into detail uh, in describing the alien's appearance. Now, interestingly enough, it's not unlike anything that we've heard before. They were uh, a very light, soft, I'd call it grayish green, really. They had no nose, but they had markings where a nose opening would be. They had eyes and a mouth, no eyebrows. They had ears. They had a very uh, poor head, and I'd say relative to the rest of their body. And uh, the ones that I saw were approximately maybe uh, five feet tall, five feet five, something like that. They're small by what a man did on Earth. Their eyes were enormous, very prominent. They were the most obvious thing you'd see on their face. So I know that was a long explanation, but I felt it was important to play the whole thing because a lot of it matches what we hear about when, you know, people talk about the grays. That matches a lot of what people mention, you know, when they are have these encounters, close encounters with the grays. And those those descriptions, you know, there's, there's a lot of correlations there to what we hear today. There was a lot that was said in this interview, but to be honest, I really don't want this to become a drawn out discussion. I feel like... I don't want to over, overstay my, my welcome on this, but so I'll go ahead and summarize some of the other things that uh, were said during her interview. One claim that really caught my attention was when Dr. Wright said that there were nine alien bodies on the ship during the crash at Roswell, and only one survived long enough to speak with them and give them all of this info before it died as well. Now, I personally had never heard of there being nine alien bodies involved with the Roswell crash before. Maybe you have. I never heard of that until I listened to this interview with Dr. Wright. It was also said, maybe unbelievably, that the one UFO that crash landed was part of an eight-ship armada. Apparently, though, this one got separated for whatever reason. They also brought up the fact that their atmosphere is similar to ours, but some of them actually tend to live underground. They're subterranean. According to this interview with Dr. Wright, she also brought up the fact that they did not have any reproductive organs, and they could not figure out how they procreate. That was one thing that the scientists, including Einstein, were trying to figure out during this investigation. Now, I bring this point up specifically because some of the recent talk behind their genetic engineering capabilities, like we were just talking about in UAP Weekly, she also said that all nine bodies looked the same, which lends credence to the clone theory. I personally... Just to give my opinion, I've always thought it makes sense that the gray aliens that we see are some type of clone because 
And I mentioned this during UAP Weekly recently, so I apologize for for repeating myself if you already heard me say it. But it just has never made any sense to me how someone from 1947 can give the same description as someone from, say, 2015. The same gray aliens look the same with the big eyes and the, you know, the, the slits and things like that on the face and small and everything. How could all of them look the same over decades of sightings? It would have to be clones from one source. These are, these are drones, so to speak, that would be sent here to Earth to carry out missions, which we talked about in UAP Weekly as far as, you know, uh, specific uh, g- genetic engineering to each gray clone. It's a theory. It makes sense to me. That's all. I guess that's that's what I'll say there. But there was one more thing that Dr. Wright said that I'll, I'll play here before we finish out um, that I, I found it kind of striking. This was her answer when she was asked if the aliens would want to continue contact with our planet Earth. Very definitely, yes. However, they had already almost discounted this as a desirable place to come. So, yes... We don't really need Earth, but we want to continue contact. So take that answer for what it's worth. And uh, You might be wondering, too, as far as motive is concerned for Dr. Wright, you know, why would she come out and talk about these things in 1993, so far after 1947? She said that she decided to do this interview because she felt, quote, an obligation to history to reveal the truth. So according to her, this really happened. Roswell really happened. And Einstein was there investigating it, and she was there as his assistant. She was all in on this, and to be fair, this interview has not been debunked. So, again, take it for what it's worth. It should also be noted that uh, Dr. Wright did not go into a lot of detail about Einstein himself and what specific role he played in the investigation. I mean, we can only assume, of course, that he was there to, to help out. But she did give this quote. That she said she wrote down in her notebook. And I'll read that now because I feel it's a good way to kind of wrap all this up for today. She quoted Einstein as saying, He was not surprised that they, the aliens, came to Earth, nor was he disturbed by seeing the evidence, meaning the wreckage and the bodies, but rather that it gave him hope that we could learn more about the universe. Contact, he said, should be a benefit for both of our worlds. I think that's a nice thought, and not surprisingly for Einstein, a very smart one. But that will do it for today on this episode 71. Thank you so much, as always, for joining me here and for considering all of the evidence today. Now, also be sure to check out the new episode of UAP Weekly coming out on Tuesday. I I, I can't put into words, honestly, and I don't want to hype this up too much, and I don't want to over-exaggerate, but... I'm just so excited for everybody to hear this interview because I mentioned it uh, a little bit on UAP Weekly a few days ago, how I spoke with Disclosure Project whistleblower D.C. Long. And if you're not familiar with his story, just get ready. In fact, even if you are familiar with his story, you need to get ready for this one. If you want to go back and watch some of what he said, if you go to YouTube and put in Disclosure Project 2.0, you'll find DC Long on there. He was one of the speakers along with, you know, Michael Herrera, Eric Hecker, guys like that. It's I'm being honest with you here. This again, I'm not exaggerating. This is not hyperbole. For me, it was truly one of the most significant episodes of this show that I have ever done. 
I recorded this already. In the interest of full disclosure, DC Long and I already recorded this interview. And when I was done, we both felt like that was a really important interview that we had just done. So I can't wait for you to hear what was said in that when it releases on July 18th. I will be putting that out for UAP Weekly on July 18th. And of course, I'll keep you updated as well on regular UAP, so to speak, like we're on right now. I have some plans for episode 72, so I'll let you know what is happening there as well. Of course, don't forget to download and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. It is everywhere at this point. And you can also follow the show on Twitter if you are not already at UA Podcast 850. That's at UA Podcast 850 on Twitter. A lot of you are doing that already. I get your messages. I try to reply to uh, as many people as I can. So I post updates on there on everything that, uh, you know, that, that happens. That's, that's kind of going on now. You can reach out to me directly with anything that's on your mind. Like I said, I try to reply to everybody. And I realize that I don't give this out enough, so I want to do it now. Because for those of you who do want to contact me in the show, but you don't use Twitter, you can email the show at sdeaneruap at gmail.com. So that's sdeaner, D-I-E-N-E-R, U-A-P, at gmail.com. On that note, actually, a special shout-out before we go to Snooky. That's right, from the Jersey Shore, the, the, the reality show. She sent me an email uh, to let me know that she has been listening to the show and how much she's been enjoying it. So thank you to her. Really appreciated that. She gave a shout-out on Twitter. Very much appreciated that. So shout-out to Snooky. Thanks for listening and uh, really happy you're enjoying it. And thank you to all of you again for taking to me and this show the way that, that you have. I can't overstate how much it really means to me. You're all amazing, and you're the reason why I continue to do what I do, of course, to get the word out there as well, but you all inspire me, so thank you very much for for taking to this the way that you have. It means the world. So, until next time, be well, and I'll talk to you soon. It's Stephen Diener here on UAP, the Unidentified Alien Podcast. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.